right? We look at people who are successful and think, oh, well, they're lucky or they're better than I am or they're prettier or, and that's why they have these things. But that's not true. The great are just those who have risen to meet their destiny. To do that, you actually have to take action steps. You have to take responsibility and you have to be willing to change, but more than that, to really pursue it. Hello, this is Gavin McLeod Valentine, and this is the What Say You podcast. In my career as a celebrity facialist, I've experienced some truly insightful conversations with some of the world's most famous faces. I often leave my clients wishing that these stimulating discussions could be shared with the public. Therefore, I decided to create a safe space to bring these inspiring conversations to you, providing illuminating insights into what really drives my guests, their passions, their purpose, their people, life lessons, and aha moments. I invite you to discover more about their journeys and hope they inspire yours. Today's guest is a spiritual leader, self-described change junkie, and best-selling authoress of two powerful books centered on bringing clarity actionable steps and proactive change to one's life, entitled Rethink Love and Fear is Not an Option. Additionally, my guest serves as Chief Communications Officer for the Kabbalah Center, a source of spiritual wisdom and life-improving tools that have greatly impacted the lives of millions globally and my own for the past 18 years. Despite orbiting each other for close to two decades, it was only recently that we were directly introduced. A thrilling experience for me, who has long admired my guest's ability to distill the profound ancient wisdom of Kabbalah into easily digestible and adaptable tools for a prosperous and impactful life. In learning more about and from this brilliant woman, I found myself inspired by the power of change, pushing and fighting to get to the core of my own potential. Today we discuss her journey to spiritual teacher and gleam important universal lessons that we can easily adopt within our own lives. And hear firsthand her driving motivation for change, her passions, her purpose, and her people. You're listening to What Say You, Monica Berg. Thank you so much for joining me, Monica. It's a thrill to have you here today. Thank you, and thank you for the beautiful introduction. It's just a reflection of the life that you've been living and the work that you've been doing. So I'm really excited about this. You know, for people who maybe don't know of you yet, and this podcast might be an introduction to who you are and what you're about, I think it's always important when I speak to somebody that really follows a spiritual path, that whole philosophy is about analyzing where they can grow, change, and prosper, and in doing so, how they can elevate those around them. I think you're such a testament to that. One of the things I don't know about you, obviously, I know you as an incredible writer. I know you as an incredible uh, force of influence at the Kabbalah Center and a deeply spiritual person, but I don't know how you got to that point. So I'd love to know a little bit about where did you grow up and how did you, at 17 years old, find yourself at a Kabbalah Center in the first place? Well, I, um, you know, when I was young, like even at age three, four, I remember feeling very connected to something larger than myself. I believed in a higher power. I remember having tea parties with God. Um, oh I liked goodness. mine with milk and sugar, and God liked his black. <laughs> Um, but we, but that really was my, I felt very much part of something bigger. And in my childhood, you know, I looked around to my, the, the adults around me, my parents, and I saw that they were all still really struggling to be consistently happy, 
to be successful enough. Um, and they didn't have the answers to questions that I would ask, you know, big questions that we all have. And then I went to Beverly Hills High School and I kind of lost myself in that span of four years. And I felt very far from the girl that felt so connected. So at 17, my parents actually had started studying Kabbalah, kind of just more as an esoteric wisdom, you know, something interesting to talk about, to philosophize about around the family table on Friday nights. And at that point, they were really worried about where I was going in life. Um, Well, I never did anything that I regret, actually. I was kind of a wild girl, and and they were worried that I would probably go too far one day. And and to... Rightfully so. I, I was a bit lost. So um, my father convinced me to go with him to Israel during spring break. It would be a great trip to connect, reconnect. And, uh, and it just so happened that at the end of that trip, it was the holiday of Passover. So we've always kind of celebrated that traditionally anyway. And he said, you know, the Kabbalah Center is having this group. Let's join them. So we went around Israel to these spiritual holy sites. And again, I had no background um, on anything, right? I didn't even ask questions or deeply think about reincarnation or past lives or intuition. Um, But on this trip, it suddenly everything came together and made sense for me in the most profound and complete way. I felt that sense of belonging again. I felt like I had come home in terms of understanding um, something that I knew before, but I didn't know how I had gotten that wisdom. So that was the beginning for me. And then I came back to Beverly Hills and I kind of got lost again for a year. And then I found it again and, and that was it for me. It just became the driving force of my life. And it really helped me navigate and make sense of what we all see that doesn't make sense in this 1% reality. And I think what's so fascinating about that is just that from even a very young age, although if we were to look at it in a spiritual context, your soul is probably not that juvenile. There was a desire and a yearning and a need, a necessity to know what this was about and to understand that there was something beyond the superficiality of the life that we're living most of us today. I sort of came to Kabbalah in a very similar point of view. I grew up in a privileged background. I lived in a very superficial way. It was all about, you know, at school who had the most designer things, who was titled, who had luxury, what group did they come from, what country did they come from. It was a whole different thing. And I remember even at that time, while playing along with those societal rules of high school identity, that this still didn't fill me up. It still actually created more of a void, made me feel more disconnected from my inherent true self. But it takes somebody with the desire to see improvement in their lives, to really look at themselves and actually understand that the game is set up in such a way to show us that what we put our attention on isn't necessarily the most powerful or meaningful to us. Well, I love what you're saying because when you said, you know, you had a need to know, a need to understand where you came from, it really was like that. I was so uncomfortable with life. Um, I was so tired, quite honestly, at 17. I was like, okay, I've seen everybody, you know, chase money and and the best car and the biggest home. And not just 
the adults around me, even the kids I went to school with, right? I mean, in Beverly Hills High School, the people are driving BMWs as their first car and Mercedes and Range Rovers. And I, I just, I, I'm like, this can't, and, and people are still unhappy, right? So I thought, this is it. I'm kind yeah. of done. Like, I'm not interested in this kind of life. So for me, I think that we all come in the world, our souls, like you said, they've been here before and we have all the information we need, but often we just can't hear it and we can't tap into that voice, right? For me, it was really loud. And for somebody who sort of can recognize the conversation that we're having already, that knows that they feel disenfranchised from what's expected of them in terms of their peer group or where they should be in their career or really puts focus on those telltale signs of quote unquote success, but they know that there's something outward that they want to connect with, something bigger than themselves. You know, you were quite lucky in terms of having a family that was still um, minded enough to know that they cared about, you know, studying Kabbalah and looking at deep truths and honing in on that. Even if it was from an esoteric sort of intellectual point of view, there was something that's inherent within the family that your soul picked, really, that would elevate you and provide you with the opportunity to find this wisdom. Well, here's the, but this is what's interesting. I just want to pause for one second because they did bring me to the wisdom, but then I think that, again, the way they approached it, it was just as a, as a a philosophy, right? Like a a wisdom that Mm. we could talk very much in the head. It wasn't in the heart necessarily. And they were so concerned that I was going to go the other way that they wanted me to find some balance and they thought that this would do it. Then when I got very involved and very immersed in this path, then they changed their whole tune. You know, then it was like, you're you're not balanced. You're too much the other way. You're too young to know what you really want. So, Mm. because I don't want, I don't want your listeners to, to think that, because anything worthwhile is there is going to be a challenge along with it. And yes, it happened to be that my parents brought me to this. But even if somebody's listening to your podcast today and they hear this and they're inspired, right? It, the information, the wisdom, anything, your next step in life, it will always come to you if you're open and you're curious and you're looking for something more. You may not know what it is, but it will find you. So then my question would be this to you. Because we're now we can really get into this and discuss what Kabbalah is, because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, it's a Google step away from really not getting closer to understanding what the the philosophy, the principle, the wisdom is about. But my question would be for you in terms of the oversaturation, we have this wellness world that we're navigating in now. People are more hyper aware, they're looking at themselves, whether it be the exercise they choose, whether they're focusing on manifestation or neuroplasticity, maybe they're doing Joe Dispenza. Maybe they're looking at Kundalini Yoga. They're finding different ways to find a spiritual philosophy and tools in their life. Why Kabbalah? Why is that something that people should really look deeper at? And perhaps they've seen it in a celebrity context and they think, oh, I don't really, it's not really for me. What would you say to anybody who's curious about discovering about this technology and what it really stands for and what it means? Well, I love this question too, because Kabbalah is the most ancient wisdom. Um, and and yes, there are many different philosophies in life. There's many different modalities. And I think truth is truth. And I think that's why you're going to see an overlap in different things, right? In a spiritual sense. Um, But for me, right, this is the most ancient wisdom. So it's going to be the wisdom there will, I mean, even if I were to study it my entire lifetime, I'm still just scratching the surface of what is available. And even my understanding of it will only be able to 
expand if my consciousness expands, right? I can read one sentence and read that a year later and a year later. And if I keep evolving through the years, I'm going to understand it in a deeper and more profound way. So it's, and what I love about Kabbalah is that it's a verb. It's all about change. What's unique, I think, here is that, you know, a lot of spiritualities, I think, make people feel better about themselves, better about the world. Yes, to be kinder and to be more aware. But Kabbalah really makes you excited about transformation. It's understanding that we're meant to evolve and grow and leave the world different from how we came into it, into a more evolved and higher level. Right. For me, that was always very exciting because then as you go through life, there are challenges, there's chaos. And if you don't have this understanding or this awareness, then life happens to you and not through you. And you basically miss the point of life. And I think that really had explained to me what I was seeing around me as a child, as the adults. You know, th- there was no awareness in this way. There's no understanding. And when you really understand that you can transform through the most difficult of experiences, and that's really part of the purpose, then you become the creator of your own life as well. I love exactly what you're saying, because I think this is one of the fundamental things about Kabbalah that has really resonated with me for a very long time now. And even though there have been moments when I've strayed and I've really sort of focus on other disciplines, other philosophies to see if it brings me to my next level, I always end up coming back because I always feel truth is truth. But what I love about the principle of this is actually taking ownership, responsibility, and having an element of control over one's life. We're so pulled left and right by so many other pressures, so many other stimuli, we're often distracted, we're never really present, let alone mindful in the existence that we're living. And we sometimes feel that things happen to us, you know, especially bad things. Uh, You know, we lose a job, we get sick, we lose an opportunity, we lose a friendship, whatever it might be, we start to blame the world. In many instances, if you're a person of faith, you blame God and you say, well, why is this happening? But what I love about Kabbalah actually says and makes it very clear that actually the outcome of my life, I actually do have in my hands. And it's a responsibility that I have to be alert and awake and attuned to what my purpose is. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's about taking complete responsibility. At the end of the day, you're responsible for the quality of your life. And far too often we assign that to God, right? It's when we're, when we're doing okay, we're successful. We did that, right? That was all me. When things go wrong, that was all God. Mm. And it doesn't work like that. We have free will for a reason. And it's be it. And it's to be able to uh, choose how you respond to situations and how you respond to experiences. That's, that's completely up to you. And it's, it's, I think that people often don't really want to do the work, right? That's I talk about change a lot. People want change. They crave change, but they are uncomfortable with it because it's not an easy thing, right? We like to feel in control. We like to feel comfortable. We like to play it safe. So it's this contradiction, right? Kabbalah is saying, no, no, no. The only way you will ever be happy and fulfilled long-term is if you embrace this idea that change is the only constant. And I, I think an important thing also that Kabbalah talks about is that you know, we have two different realities. The first is the seen world, right? It's everything that's the world of effect. It's all that you can see, feel, hear. Um, it's the way you interact with yourself, your body, your family, your home, your job, your possessions. And the truth of the matter is, 
a lot of people spend most of their time consumed and occupied in this reality. Whether they want to or not, this is really, you know, mm-hmm. I wake up in the morning, I'm upset yesterday because that person spoke to me in a bad way, or I don't like the way I look at, you know, when I look in the mirror, or my boss upset me, right? It's very much ego-based reality. The second is the world of the unseen. Mm-hmm. That's your emotions, your dreams, your thoughts, beliefs, connections, kindness, love. It's all of those beautiful things, right, that we really crave on a bigger bigger yeah. level. Um and the unseen accounts for 99% of our experiences, but we place an, our focus and attention on the 1%, which is the seen world, and it's all backwards. So I think that Kabbalah is a really useful and effective tool to help people get organized and prioritize really what's important so that 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, you don't look back and say, you know, what did I do with my life? Even if you had a good life, it could have been a great life. Do you remember a moment or a time when you realized that the work that you were doing, the application of the tools in your life, actually you were like, oh, I'm different. I have changed. I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm feeling about this differently. Yeah, I think that it's dependent on how much effort and energy you put into this. I was just sharing the other day that if you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about that 1% reality that I just talked about, you know, like... Um, even if your first thought is like, oh, I'm hungry or, you know, what am I, it's all about instant immediate gratification versus the, the bigger thing of, you know, who am I going to be today, right? Where do I actually want to put my effort and my energy? Yeah. What do I want to aspire to be? You know, if you, if you really preface your whole life like that, and I know it sounds huge, but you could just wake up in the morning and you direct your consciousness, right? You decide what to focus on. When it becomes something that is your your strongest desire, then you live a very different life because we all need desire, right? We all need to have desire in life. If not, we'd we'd be dead, right? Because of desire, we enjoy things. Because of desire, we live. If we didn't have desire, we would no longer exist. The key is to transform the desire to see for yourself alone only to the desire to see for the sake of sharing. And when you live in that realm, you will feel fulfilled. You do feel satiated. You do feel happy. And then it becomes addictive, for for me, and that's really a big part of my message because I think that everybody can kind of live life that way. And then you start to embrace change and seek change rather than run away from it. So I did see small changes through through the beginning of my study with Kabbalah. But the more I started to really make this my biggest desire to transform myself, which by the way, and I think it's an important point, part of that transformation is to learn to love who you are, even with all the flaws, right? It's not about denying yourself and trying to pursue this perfection, which is impossible. It's about saying, okay, there are parts of my personality or my character that don't serve me. And if I'm being honest with myself and I make my ego be quiet, I'll be able to recognize what that is. And I don't want to take that along with the journey of my life. And then the parts of yourself that you kind of already like, you're able to then grow and enhance those. And the more that you do that, then this doesn't become something that you think about. It's just parts, it becomes part of your being. And that was, for me, it became much more, I mean, that's just how I live every day now. Well, that would be my question. When does it change from having an intellectual thought? Okay, I need to I need to think about this differently. I need to bite my tongue. I need to be cautious about how I respond. I need to be attuned with what I'm really trying to communicate. When does it go from being an intellectual thought to being something that's resonant in your heart space and actually a change in the consciousness? Well, I just want to say one thing. I don't ever believe in biting your tongue. I think what you're trying to say is like to learn to restrict, but I think far too often people repress what they feel and then they explode and then they say, oh, the spirituality thing isn't really working for me. 
I think that it's to be able to really have that transformation occur where it's not even hard to bite your tongue or to restrict it. Kind of like, wait, you know, what kind of person do I want to be in one year from now or five years from now? If you start to visualize that, I mean, I don't think a lot of people ask themselves this question. I ask myself this every day. I give myself emotional feedback every day. And if I do something, I don't beat myself up about it if I wasn't proud of it. I say, okay, well, what where is my headspace at that I decided to behave in that way? I think to move from the head to the heart, you have to really be honest with yourself about what you desire and why you desire it. Because it comes down to intention at the end of the day. What is your intention? Why are you pursuing these things? Because somebody can give, for instance, charity, right? And and it's a great thing to do and it's a very kind thing to do. But are they doing it because they want people to like them or they want to feel good about themselves because they don't really feel like they're living the life that they should and this is one way to kind of make them feel better today? Is it a Band-Aid? You know, is it easy to give if you have a billion dollars to give, you know, a hundred thousand or even a million, let's say. If you have one billion dollars, that's not going to be a big stretch for you. Mm. So I think it starts with really being honest with yourself about where you're at and 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 how you live your life. You know, day to day, are you lying to yourself or are you really being honest about the good and the bad? I love that. And what I really love about your explanation of all of this is that it's very digestible. It makes a lot of practical sense. It's something that, you know, makes a lot of it makes a lot of decision-making. It puts the power back into the individual. And I love what you said about it's not about biting your tongue. And so for that point, you know, because in Kabbalah, the, the idea is obviously about change. It's about growth. It's about um, pushing back against the ego, not giving in to the desire to receive for the self alone, and really growing consciously through that process. It uh, reminds me of a funny story about 10 years ago with my teacher at the time. And I was really sort of working on myself and I'm quite confident. I'm quite bold. Um, I'm a product of my upbringing. But there was a time where I was actually getting really quite insecure and I wasn't speaking up about myself and I wasn't sort of pushing back on anything. And, if, and even if my teacher or anybody else made assumptions about me, I sort of gave my power away. I remember speaking very forcefully and really, really pushing back. And I remember the teacher saying, you have to restrict. And I said, oh, no, 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 this is me being proactive. If I I stay quiet, then I'm really not growing and I'm really not changing. So the concept here about restriction, what is that? Can you explain that to me in a way that sort of makes sense to people listening? So I think for... I think for most people, right, we all go through life, unless we've, we're doing this kind of work to constantly tame the ego, we go through life where people may, um, it could be good or bad, right? But let's just start with the negative. Let's say that they tell us that, uh, you know, belittle us or put us down or we have an argument and, you know, we want to be the right one. So our ego is like, okay, wait a second. You can't allow that person to think that you're wrong or you can't allow that person to speak to you that way. So what happens? We we react in, in big ways, especially when we're angry, right? And often we regret the mm. things that we say. Um, I know that when, you know, when I have an argument with somebody, let's say my husband, I mean, this is more, it's not so much the case now, but um the first thing you'd want to do is, again, to go back and say all these things and stick up for yourself. Kabbalists teach that you should wait three days before you actually respond. Because by that time, the emotion is no longer really activated. And now whatever you're left with, there might be some mm-hmm. truth there and you can have a conversation about it. So when we create the space be- between um, cause and effect, right? 
then you are able to choose your response. And very often it's one that's going to be more thoughtful. And you will also in that process think about, because part of that is like you stop, you pause, you think about what the person's saying. You actually appreciate that this has come into your life because there's a reason for it. And then you try to ask yourself, what is my role in this? How can I either learn from it or how can I do something differently myself? So it really makes it become a process that, again, creates a possibility for transformation and evolution. And what that does is that gives you the opportunity to sort of get away from the uh, immediate emotional resistance to the stimuli, if we're talking about in a negative context. And by giving yourself that breathing space, you actually think in have the conversation about really what is the root of the disconnection and how can we move forward from that, that perspective rather than having the emotional hysteria around it. Right. And let's say even this, let's say that you're somebody who is really dependent on approval and, and reliant on that, right? So somebody comes around and they're nice to you and right away you want to go and give them gifts and do all these things for them. It's also healthy to restrict them in those cases and say, okay, what, where am I coming from here? What is my intention? Why am I doing this? So it creates a space where you can actually stop and look at your actions, and then this is where the free will comes in, choose, you know, is this something that I want to do? And if I do want to do it, where is it coming from and why do I want to do it? I think far too often we go through life with this automatic pilot, you know, and we, we don't often take time to pause. I think before COVID, you know, certainly our lives are so busy. And then with the pandemic now, people have had time to kind of stop and think and, and rethink, right? Am I happy with where I'm at in my life? Do I want to spend my life this way? But they're very often very scared to answer that because they don't even know how to start. The whole point here, it begins with honesty. You can give yourself information and feedback. You don't even have to do anything with it right away, but just allow the space, create that space for, for, for room for a possibility of something else that you're not thinking of right away. I totally agree with you. And what's so fascinating about the the COVID and the quarantine and everybody sort of having a quieter life and really being with their thoughts and really looking and, and, and evaluating what their life has been up until this point. Now, obviously, there are wonderful moments that many of us are missing and, and certainly a sense of connection and coming together. But what I was looking at when I was looking at my life, you know, my career is in service to other people. And what I realized was how many times I was approaching clients or coming out of a situation from a real low sense of worth. And that I was, my husband always says, I'm doggy paddling. Please like me. Please work with me. Please talk to me. Can I do more for you? Can I do more? No, I'm not going to charge you. All this stuff constantly to find a way to feel validated, to be seen, to be heard. And then guess what? When you spend your whole life chasing people, you turn around and you realize when really, when that hits the fan, those are not the people who are there. And those people are not really conducive to you feeling the best about yourself or even growing as an individual, unless you have the clarity to look at it like I did and go, this isn't serving me. Right, because I, I think what you were explaining before is that you were completely focused or primarily focused on external feedback versus the internal feedback that we're discussing now. And if you do that, it's, you will never, you'll be chasing that your entire life because it's not, it's not set up. Our lives are not supposed to be set up that way. Whatever it is that you're looking for from somebody else, whether, because um, why, why would you offer your services for free? You've worked so hard to get where you're at and they recognize that. So now that they've recognized it, why would you give it? Because they might go somewhere else or because you don't value your time. It's, it's every time we behave in ways that we know are not really aligned with our true essence, with our soul, it's a great opportunity to pause and say, what am I afraid of? And what other options do I have? 
where I would feel more comfortable with this. What would you say is sort of a baby step to really, like you say, having that awareness to say, I deserve more than this. I don't like that I'm pushed and pulled and my mood and my emotions are affected by outside people all the time at every opportunity. What's the first beginning step that one can take to have the clarity around where they're falling short for themselves? Well, you know, I really think it comes down to is shame. I think many people walk around with shame that they may not even be aware of, or maybe they don't call it that, but it's the shame of wanting. Somehow, you know, Mm. when we're young, uh, younger, especially girls get this feedback very early on, usually in third, fourth, fifth grade, but boys do too, that it's somehow unseemly to say, I want this. And in my book, Rethink Love, I talk about the first time I ever felt shame. It was so such a small nothing of a moment. I was at my um, my mom's best friend. We called her Tante. She was like an aunt and they lived in New York and uh, we stayed with them. That's how close we were, right? My mom's three daughters, mm-hmm. my dad, and it's a, it's a New York apartment, right? Not a lot of room, but that's how close we are and intimate, right? So this is like the last night we're there for a few nights and um, my aunt's husband comes in the room and he has like a bowl of beautiful fruit. And I was probably seven years old at the time and we're watching TV together, all of us. And he says, does anybody want fruit? And I said, oh, I would love a piece. And the whole room went, like, and I thought, oh my God, I shouldn't have asked for that. And, you know, only years later when I started to do this work, I thought, well, you know, that's not on me. He was actually incredibly rude. If he was cutting fruit for himself, he should have cut enough for everybody, right? So, but I remember Mm. like that was the feedback that, I got, and I think that unless you really, and I do this exercise actually with people to go back and think about the first experience they had with shame. And I have seen profound, profound results as, from people doing this work. This one woman in my workshop, she, uh, she shared that the first time she felt shame, Again, she was around that age and she went to her ballet class and she was supposed to, everybody's supposed to bring like their favorite object to show to the room to get to know each other. And Michael Jackson was really popular then. And he had just come out with one of his videos and he was, you know, the, the, the glitter glove, right? The, um, sequence Mm -hmm. silver glove. So she was in love with him and she got one and she brought it. And the, the teacher shamed her, like made so much fun of her. Like, why would you bring that? That's so ugly. It's so inappropriate. And she was so embarrassed that for the rest of her life, she chose to play it safe. She was creative. She was an artist. She chose a job in banking that she hates, but it's, it's something that is safe. Her whole life has been, and she's crying hysterically now in her thirties and she's still stuck there. Right. So I think that when you don't ever stop and look and say, okay, what am I telling myself that I'm not allowed to want or I'm not allowed to desire? That's where it really begins. This is very hitting home in a big way for me in a, in a, in a funny sort of a way that I wasn't expecting actually. But this idea of shame, you know, I feel like shame is a friend of mine, not, not a good friend actually, we're not talking right now, but it's constantly with me. And I remember, <laughs> so interesting that you're saying this because actually, you know, I'm a confident person now. I'm outgoing. I'm married to a man, you know, that was a huge blessing in my life to be able to have that union. And is an individual that I met at the Kabbalah Center who was hugely instrumental in supporting me in so many ways of my life. But growing up in rural Scotland, you know, with narrow-minded people, although they did the best they could with what they had, you know, that was when the first time I realized my whole existence I was made to feel shamed about. I was made to feel shamed if I came out of the closet. I remember a family member when I was nine years old, and granted, I was standing like a little teapot, 
But I remember him telling me, don't stand like that. You look like a faggot. Oh my God. And I didn't even know what that was. I didn't even know what that was. And, you know, my interests were very different mm-hmm. from everybody else at school. I love to watch Dynasty reruns. I mean, what's happening? Um, but I was made to feel shame about who I felt and I inherently was. I was made to feel shamed about the interests that I've had. And I've always felt that I've been outside my own generation looking in because the ideals and the things that they have gravitated towards have never resonated with me. And instead of being an autonomous, independent, thoughtful, smart, empowered person, I then took it on as there's something wrong with me. I'm defective. I'm corrupted. And then you put the religiosity on top of that and you basically realize I'm, you know, ashamed in my real life and that I'm a sinner thereafter. You know, it's a big thing to deal with. And I actually don't know until I've had this moment with you if I've ever looked at it in those ways before and realized that has been the foundation of where I come from a place of lack. I would say a thousand percent. I mean, really, I've done this work with hundreds of people and uh, and they're always shocked that they're still carrying it around. And and once they realize where it's come from, well, that's the beginning of really releasing it. I know that. I know that when I did that work, um, I think it changed everything for me. And when my second son was born, he was born with Down syndrome. But I only found out a few hours after he was born, and I was I, I was full of shame. I couldn't believe that he had come from my body, and. I thought at that time that mm. they did something wrong. I mean, and I was already studying Kabbalah, right? But you believe certain things, even even if you're studying spirituality, right? Because we learn things in the way that we can actually believe them in that moment, where we can hold on to them. So mm. I remember thinking, wait, I don't want to be this person. I, th- there's no shame. There's no punishment. I don't believe in that kind of life. And I don't believe in suffering. So at that part of my life, I really finally did release it. And I know that until that point, I spent the first 28 years of my life looking outside of myself for answers. And I think many people do that. I was so caught up in everybody else. What did they think? What did they want? What can I do for my family, my peers, fellow students, colleagues at work, right? Because especially imagine when I walk down the street, people will know that I have a son with Down syndrome and they'll think that there's something wrong with me as well. And I just stopped myself in my tracks and I said, you are not going to be this person. You are not. Um, and I started to ask my que- myself better questions like, am I a person who can stand on my own? Do I have enough insight into who I am and what I believe to make the right choices for myself? And those are profound questions. And by doing so, you know what happened? I gave myself power and I created my credo, which was in change, there's great power. And I think that was the beginning of me really not just learning the wisdom, but starting to really live it, own it, and then teach it. It was the beginning of everything for me because if you're nobody on your own, then you're nobody in a group. And if the group's gone, then so are you. And I just didn't want to live my life on those terms anymore. I think also, and another flip side of that is also how many of us get our feeling of importance or validation or acceptance within a group. But when we go back to our homes or we're by ourselves, that's often when we feel our most shameful. It's we, we, we're left to deal with the truth of what we believe about ourselves rather than the accoutrement, the dressing, the personality that we put on to be emboldened and empowered in our lives so people don't know that inherently we have low self-worth and we don't feel that strong. 
Exactly. If if your self worth is dependent on something external, right, right, and that's gone, right? Like, let's say somebody's dating, and um, let's say she never felt beautiful, right? She was always insecure, but now she met somebody, and he's telling her over and over again, "You're so beautiful." You know, I love you so much. And then, so she starts to feel good about herself. She starts to believe it. Then he breaks up with her. So now what do you think she's going to think, right? She's going to go back to what she felt all along. So the, you can get, mm. you can have Band-Aids in life, but it won't last. I think that at at the core of what I try to, to offer people is that for each person to know that they're deserving of greatness. It's not reserved for the great, right? We look at people who are successful and think, oh, well, they're lucky or they're better than I am or they're prettier or, and that's why they have these things. But that's not true. The great are just those who have risen to meet their destiny. To do that, you actually have to take action steps. You have to take responsibility and you have to be willing to change, but more than that, to really pursue it. What I think is so interesting in the culture that we're living now, you're right, because I I do kind of believe you have to see something to believe something. And I don't mean, you know, we we talk about in the 99% or um, the non-material world, not in that way where we don't see, I can't believe it. But in terms of if I see somebody, right, and they are around my age and they're successful, they have the job that I want, the car that they have, the coat that I want, they're carrying five Birkins, whatever the case might be, right? I now start to believe that this is possible for me. Because if they can do it, then I can certainly do it. I can manifest that in my life. Yes and no. But it depends on what you think about yourself, right? If you don't have self-worth and you have shame about what you are entitled to have and you instead of seeing it as, wow, this is a model for me of something I can achieve, you can look at it another way. You can just be jealous, right? Or you can judge them, or you can do all kinds of these tricks to make yourself feel better about where you're at, right? And there, and by the way, it's just, it's a choice. You can do A or B. You're so right about that. You're so right, because I actually do think that in social media culture, we have more people looking at quote unquote successful people and choosing to tear them down, criticize them, shame them rather than actually being inspired Mm -hmm. by their accomplishments or what they've pushed through to achieve these things in their own lives. And that's a big conscious shift right there. A thousand percent. And by the way, I, I don't even think it's because they're bad people. I just think they're just not happy. They're not comfortable with who they are and they just don't know how to get out of that space. Because at, you know everybody has good and evil in them, every single one of us. And the one that grows is the one that you feed, right? So it, it just comes down to that. I don't even, you know, I, 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 of course it feels horrible to be trolled and it feels horrible when people judge you. Um, but I really try to, even when that happens, I, I first try to shift this, you know, the feeling, the emotion of, yes, this is, doesn't feel good, but it's not personal. And by the way, the more you're trying to do big things in the world and the more you're trying to go, be good and do good, you can expect f- for people to oppose you. I mean, that's part of the territory. So what would you say to somebody who does have low self-esteem, they're, they're dressing themselves up with the confidence that they don't have, they're displaying themselves through their Instagram identity, they then get those troll-like comments and it immediately goes to their weak spot. It makes them feel terrible. They focus on it. It's ruined their entire week, month, year, whatever. What are some of the simple ways that someone can just simply taking away from not allowing that hostile energy to really affect them? What's the key there? Yeah, it really, honestly, it, it's, it sounds so simple. It's just so hard to do. You have to go back to what your intention is and the things that you do, right? 
And I think that's what's uncomfortable Mm. here, (laughs) but it's the truth. If you're, let's say you're posting a ton of things on social media and you're doing it because you want to paint a a picture, right? Um, That may not even be true. Maybe you're doing it because you want people to love you or whatever it is. I think that if you're really out there doing things in the world that you're really proud of from a place, again, that is internal, that really feeds you, that speaks to your soul, that you really feel so connected to, then when you hear these other things, it's not going to sway you as much because you have a certainty and a strength to what you're doing, right? But if you are so... Your foundation is built strong. Exactly. But if you're so concerned with what people think, well, then you're going to be affected by every single thing, every bad comment, every poor thing. And by the way, I think we just have to be clear in life. You're always, you don't think that successful comedians, of course, people, it's human nature, you know, and and it can come from all different reasons. But I think that it's a waste of time to give energy to things that take your energy away. It's just a choice you have to make. I refuse to live my life like that. But what you don't refuse to do is to stay static. You push forward, you fight for change, you're a self-described change junkie. And this is actually taking you to a new chapter in your life. So you started as a student of Kabbalah. You obviously became very involved. You had the blessing to find a great husband, um, Michael Berg, and to have you know, beautiful children. And what's so fascinating to see your evolution, Monica, from somebody who's sort of outside looking in to a certain extent, is to see how much you've really grown into your sense of self, your place of belonging, and you're very clear about the messages and the and the the philosophies that you want to share with people to pull them up and to empower them in two key areas that hold us all back. So you have two books, Rethink Love and Fear is Not an Option. Let's start with Fear is Not an Option because I actually think fear sort of bleeds into so many aspects of what we're doing. What I love about the book is you actually break fear into three different types so that we can actually look at the meaning behind them and we can choose how and when they show up in our lives. Yes. Um, I think that fear, what I realized, right, because with every, we talked about shame being a companion, but fear actually also comes along for the ride in every situation. Mm. And often, you know, we don't come in the world like that. If you look at children, they're willing to try different things, learn to, to walk, obviously, right? Ride a bike and they fall, they get up again. It's just part of, and we understand that, right? When we're children, it's just part of learning. You're going to fall and you're going to get back up again banged knee, scrapes, bruises, blood, whatever. Uh, And then when we get older, right, fear starts to set in and it starts to control us because we go through things in life and some things really do scare us and they're not explained to us. And, um, And at our core, really, we are all afraid of one thing and that's the fear of the unknown. And when I finally realized it, I was like, okay, we need to talk about this because the only thing you can be sure of is that we know nothing, right? You can plan your day. We both had a plan today. I don't know if everything you planned worked out for you, but we all have a plan. We wake up in the morning. We know exactly how our day is going to go. And we actually look at our lives like that. And then when it doesn't turn out, we're saying, oh my God, that's not what I expected. We get upset. We get disappointed, but we also get scared. But when we start to understand that it's okay, that unknown that's just, that is the reality of life. And it's not a scary thing because it could even be a better thing than you had planned. So I do break down fear into three types. Do you want me to go through that quickly? I would love that, yes. Okay, so there's three types of fear. There is 
healthy fear, real fear, and illogical fear. So healthy fear is just like it sounds. It's set up for our survival and our protection. It's there to keep us safe. So for instance, if you're on a hike and you get too close to the edge of a cliff and you get that feeling like your heart starts beating or your stomach drops, it's your body telling you, you know, wait a second, you could be in danger here. So you step back. The same thing if you're too close to an open flame, you know to pull your hand away from it. It's also intuition. Um, you know, if you're about to go in an elevator and there's somebody in there already and you feel uncomfortable, there's something telling you, no, don't. It's there to protect you. One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Carol Durant from Murray, Utah. And um, she was approached by a police officer one day in a parking lot. And he said to her, you know, your car's been stolen and we've apprehended the suspect. Can you please come with me to the station? Because he has some of your items. We want you to identify them. And she got that feeling I'm explaining to you, that feeling in her stomach, something's not quite right. So she looks at him and she said, well, can I see your identification? So he shows her his badge and she decides to go along with him. She's reluctant, but still she ignores this intuition. She ignores this healthy response. And she goes with him. So they're driving down the highway and she notices that he's going the opposite direction of the station. So she says, wait, you know, what are you doing? (laughs) It's not the way we're supposed to go. And because she was already alarmed, she had one arm, one hand on the door, the handle, and he was driving with one hand. And then with his other hand, he's trying to handcuff her. So she was able to jump out of the moving car. He stops the car, a fight ensues on the side of the road, and she's able to escape miraculously, right? So mm-hmm. two days later, she's reading the paper and she sees that on that same day, a few late hours later in that afternoon, a woman is taken, she's raped and then killed. And she looks at the picture of the man because they got him and it was serial killer Ted Bundy. So this is (laughs) healthy fear is necessary. (laughs) Then there is real fear and that's based in reality. It's fear of death, of illness, of sickness, of um, losing our loved ones. These are things that do happen, right? So you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I mean, how do we get over that fear? I think far too often people get stuck here worrying and ruminating about what's going to happen if, you know, my parents die, right? And instead of spending time enjoying the time you have together, right? Saying, I love you, making sure the conversation goes well and that they really know that you love them and you appreciate them. You know, we spend this time in the other place. So you could actually shift that. You could be vocal about the the way you really feel. Or if you're afraid of getting sick, again, create a healthier lifestyle where you don't eat as much sugar, where you exercise, where you think positive thoughts, right? All of these things. So with real fear, we can also remedy that one. And then there is illogical fear. And this is where we spend most of our time. It's fear of spiders and heights and airplanes and public speaking. It's the thing that actually steals our joy and robs us from reaching our potential and living the life that we really want because we're so immersed with the fear of failure and what if I'm rejected and I put myself out there that we don't even try. And this fear has to be eradicated. So healthy fear is, when we talk about intuition, that's sort of the fight or flight mentality within the the consciousness Mm -hmm. of that. Is that correct? Yes. And and your body's having a real reaction to the fear. And, And then the illogical fear, if you wanted to divide, because I think a lot of people do get intuition and paranoia confused and they always second guess themselves and question it. But actually illogical fear is where there's paranoid, unsubstantiated beliefs start to bleed in and therefore affect our experience in the world that we're living in. Okay, here's the thing with intuition. Intuition is always in the present. 
you're not, your mind's not going to go to the past. It's not going to go to the future. Mm. That's what a logical fear does, right? This thing happened in the past. I know it's going to happen again because it happened, or I'm afraid of this thing that's going to happen, right? There's no, there's no consciousness there, right? So intuition is very much Mm. something you're feeling right now, right? You're about to walk in the elevator and suddenly, no, 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 this doesn't feel right. It's not based on anything that had happened or that you thought about in the past or future. That's really such a succinct, wonderful way to, to explain it. Thank you for doing that because it just makes it very clear and very distinct. What can someone do um, if they want to grow the intuition muscle? I always felt that when I was young, I was highly intuitive. And as I got older, I seem to have lost my magic superpower. How do I work <laughs> on bringing that back? Well, the thing with intuition is that when you are so focused on external feedback, again, what you've done is you've raised other people's voices and that's the really loud one and you've made yours small. And so you no longer have access mm. to that part. Intuition is something that kind of comes and sits over from your shoulder. It's something that comes from like above you or around you. It's a feeling you get and it's a guidance you get. And eventually you're going to hear the voice. The voice will become louder and louder Um And then you'll know to trust it. But if you constantly are pushing away these thoughts that come to you, right, these feelings, these different things like, well, you know, maybe today you should study instead of, you know, going shopping or uh, where did that come from? Right. Because you want to go shopping, right? (laughs) Actually, you want to go shopping. But it's that kind of thing that's trying to guide you in the way that's going to be in your best interest. Um, It's a knowing that you have. You know, it's it's interesting. There's a story that I tell. the uh, it was on a podcast. I can't remember the name right now, but this actor, he's a really good friend in New Orleans, and uh, you know they're in touch. They went to school together. They have different backgrounds. They both were alcoholics, and they came from low income families. And they really they went to college together, so they had a lot in common from their past. But his friend was really kind of eccentric. He didn't have a phone, so he couldn't really reach him regularly. And then one day, he just came into his mind. Right? They don't talk that much anymore. And he said, I've got to go see my friend in New Orleans, like something, I just, I have to go, right? This thought just kept coming at him for no reason. So he flies to New Orleans and uh, he goes to the apartment and he, right away, he sees that the king cake that he had sent him three weeks before is still sitting outside. So he knew something was wrong. And he's knocking on the door, knocking on the door, he can't get in. He goes and he asks the super to let him in and he finds his friend dead on the floor. So I I think that in those ways, right, sometimes we just try to quiet it because we can't make sense of the thought we had or the feeling we had. Mm. But I I encourage people to actually explore that. To lean into that. Can you think of a specific moment? That's who it was. It was John Larroquette was the actor. Oh, got it. That's an incredible story about really when you know something, you know something. And what I loved previously, I think, when we've spoken You've always told me that intuition is sort of it's sort of a gentle landing. It's just, as you say, it's a knowing, and it's not wrapped up in any sort of stress or sort of heightened element of panic around it. It's just it's a it's a clear, concise message. Exactly. It's it's exactly that. Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you were um, you're tapping into a different frequency. You know, we have just like when I'm talking about the ninety nine percent, the unseen, right? It's like radio waves wireless internet, you can't see it, but you know it exists. Intuition operates very much the same way. 
And, uh, and I think, again, when people get these kinds of messages, maybe it scares them or they don't know where it's coming from, so they push it away. But it will never steer you in the wrong way. Can you think of any uh, specific moments when you have been able to conquer a logical fear that's held you back? Yeah, I've had many times where I, I mean, now it's become something that I don't even, you know, as soon as a fear starts to develop, I'm like, all right, let's tackle this. It's not, I don't even let it, you know, leave the station. <laughs> so, because that's what happens when you don't challenge your fears, they grow and they grow and they get bigger. And then you get, you carry them through life and you keep adding on to that. You feed them. Oh, a thousand percent. I, you know, in my book, I write about this uh, one example where um, after Josh was born, right, my son with Down syndrome, I got pregnant three months later, because I knew that if I didn't, I probably would have been too scared to try again. Um, I have four children now and oh my God, I would have missed out on two other beautiful children. If I had fed that fear, I think it was the bravest thing I ever did. I just dove in and I had so many fears and one would say, well, they weren't illogical, right? I already had one child with Down syndrome and the chances of having another one after you've already had one are are greatly increased. But, um, but I decided that, you know, I, I believe in life and joy and, and blessings more than I, I believe in you know, bad things happening just randomly because I don't believe that. So anyway, um, shortly after my daughter was then born, uh, I noticed you know my body went through a whole change, as did my mind and, and my emotions, um, every part of my being. But I used to be like the person that you would call in. And now I'm that person again. But like if there's a, a situation, right? And everybody's like, there's blood or what you call me, you know, I'll pull teeth out. I'm like the calm person. <laughs> I'm the calm one in, uh, in, in chaotic situations. But my adrenal glands were so shot at that time that, I mean, I, I would faint. I mean, the sight of blood, I just couldn't, I could not handle anything at that point because my, my system was just shocked. Now, I didn't fully know that yet, right? So I had this great idea. The kids were a couple of years now, they're older, and I had three at the time, and I thought, I used to love roller coasters and love amusement parks, the thrill, right? I loved that. So I'm like, let's, we're going to go on roller coasters today. We're going to go, it's going to be so much fun. And my husband doesn't love those kinds of things. He also doesn't love heights, but I convinced him that it's going to be like the best time. So we get on the first roller coaster and it's inching up and, um, and it starts out really slowly to get you, you know, excited about what's supposed to come. And I remember to my left, there's this bear waving, like a grizzly bear or something waving. And I'm thinking it's meant to be adorable, but actually this is, you know, to show me like this is the last happy thing I'm ever going to see in my life. It's like a sign of impending doom, actually. So I had this crazy thought that I would just jump off the roller coaster because there was a platform next to this bear and we were going so slow and I could slip out of, I could actually, if I wanted to. And then I caught the thought and I thought, oh my God, you sound crazy. You're going to end up on the news. You're going to embarrass yourself and your family. I'll never live this down, right? So obviously I didn't jump off the, the roller coaster. So I wrote it and I hated it. I hated it. But what I did that day is I forced myself to go on every ride because I knew if not, I would have left the park with another fear. And I refused to do that. And the same thing happened really like five years ago with skiing. Um, I ski, you know, good enough, but I don't ski often enough to really feel so confident. Mm. So I get lessons whenever I ski again, because it's just, there's so much space in between. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'm really athletic anyway. So we, we do, you know, we go up to the different, um, different hills, right? So they're, they're more challenging. So by the third day, and it was the last lesson I had, we went on this one that looked really scary for me, but I was like, okay, he's like, you're ready. You know what to do. 
So I'm going down and I am sweating and I'm like uh, barely making it. I think I even fell once. I got back up, I made it down the hill. And he said to me, okay, it was really great meeting you, you know, blah, blah, blah. Thank you so much. I'm like, no, let's go do it again. And he looked at me and he said, what? He said, you know, I have taken everybody, so many people on this and they have the same ride you do right there at the same level. And they're like, okay, goodbye. I'm not doing that again. You're the first person to actually ask, like, let's go do it again. Cause I knew I would have left with another fear that day. So yeah. it's really about challenging any fear. Um, and I give different ways of doing that and steps of how to do that to really break it down for you. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's not, you know, you look at people later in life, right? I told you earlier, people come in the world when they're kids, no fear. And then over time, you look at somebody when they're 80s, 90s, they're full of fear. Well, what happened in that process? Uh, I have to say, I really love, love, love Fear is Not an Option. It's a great book for anybody listening. It's well worth your time. It's also an excellent audiobook. Um, so make sure that you check that out too. I have a quick question to you about fear. If I am somebody who maybe I'm, working in an environment, my boss is not always that nice to me. I don't stand up for myself. I'm always afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, but I take that moment to face fear and to stand up for myself or to put myself in a different position or to really advocate. How do you stop the fear of the outcome coming in? How do you stop worrying about, oh, I've stood up here and I faced my fear in this moment, but what's going to happen now? Well, I, I think that's pointless. I think that if you really are in a situation where you feel it's intolerable or you feel not proud of yourself or they're being taken advantage of, I think that it is important for us to stick up for ourselves. And of course, there's so many variables, so I don't want to just be black and white about it. But I think mm. that very often, again, with illogical fears, the reason people take them along is because they tell themselves that story. You know, I don't want to lose my job, the 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 job... Um, market is so competitive or it's so unstable right now. I'm so lucky to have a job. I mean, that's one way to live life, but maybe if you actually advocated for yourself, you would start to enjoy the job you have, or maybe you would have the courage to start pursuing other passions that you have. I just don't think living somebody else's life is something that any of us are meant to do. I love that. And actually you're very right because ultimately what that example shows, if the person is the foundation and the connection to the inner self, to the to the heightened level of consciousness, knowing that you are a loved, um, expressive, important, valuable soul that's contributing and doing uh, good work in the world just by simply being, and your foundation is not rocky, then it doesn't matter the outcome because I do think the universe rewards those who get closer to themselves. I think that the process is the purpose and very often people just focus on the purpose, right? That I, I need mm. job stability and that's the purpose. And actually everything in life, it's really about the purpose. It's what you learn along the road. It's what you learn about yourself. It's what you learn not to do or what you want to do more of. And and that's everything. That's where you're going to actually derive the, the greatest meaning uh, from each experience. And that's where you really learn to love yourself, yeah. actually. What I love about the two books that you've authored, if we take Fear is Not an Option, that's a, it's, you know, it's such a great read because it really shows you and shows the reader how many times one holds oneself back because of these limited beliefs, because of this programming, because of this inability to get out of one's own way. But that can also bleed through to another big issue in area in one's life, which is that of love, whether it's romantic love, whether it's friend love, familial love, you name it, that can re and self-love. That can really be, the two I think go beautifully together because they are inherently connected. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I wrote about love. I actually started writing love first. It took me seven years to write that book. It's like the Bible of love, as I call it. Um, and then fear is not an option. I wrote in about seven months. Um, wow. Maybe I became a better writer in the process. But really with love, I, you know, I, I meet so many people with students around the world. And the biggest things that came up as a theme for their supposed unhappiness was the lack of love um, and, and they wanted romantic love or they were in a relationship and it wasn't a great relationship, but really at the core of all that is self-love. The first eight chapters are really how to learn to love yourself so completely and feel so fulfilled mm. and, and so authentic and, and so um, really belonging, not fitting in, but belonging, you know, arriving on your terms. And, uh, and then it, we go into me to we, which is, um, how to maintain all of those things while entering a relationship. And then we is how to be in a successful relationship. But, uh, but you know, that's the thing with relationships. I think far too often people, and it's one of the things we learn when we are younger as well. It's this fairy tale notion of love and that love, you know, will, will save all, save the day, conquer all. Um, love is all you need. He loves me enough just for the both of us. I mean, we hear these things in movies and songs and lyrics and poems and, and I think that we start to, and I write about that, you know, we have cherished delusions. We chase the thing that we think will bring us happiness and we never stop mm-hmm. with where it all started and where it all ends, which is with you. You know, you can't, you can't avoid yeah. um, yourself. And I often say when somebody doesn't like who they are, it's like being in a wet bathing suit all day and with sand inside and sticky oh. and just all day uncomfortable. And again, I just don't think, I know we're not meant to live like that. I'm certainly not going to. And I really, that's my life's work is to show people that they can be great and they can attract greatness and they can live the life that they really, really want. You know what I do love of what you say also about the concept of a soulmate is that people have this idea that it's, oh, it's the perfect completion. You feel whole because of that person. Everything is idyllic. You're skipping through forests and fields together all day. But actually, a soulmate is somebody that can really challenge you to bring about the most change in growth. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I really want to talk about soulmates, because that's the question I get a lot too. When I'm going to meet my soulmate, I'm like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, It's not about meeting your soulmate necessarily, right? Because you can have soul connection with people. But the real thing here, and, and this is the part that's not romantic, is that if you want to attract your soulmate, you need to do that spiritual work yourself, right? You have to be that level of soul. Mm-hmm. To attract a soulmate, what is a soulmate? It's somebody who's going to be your mirror who's going to actually challenge you and you're going to challenge them. You're actually going to bring out the best in one another by pointing out the parts that need to change and that needs work. Um, And it's a beautiful thing because actually that is how it's meant to be. And when you really have a soulmate relationship, you are in a, a relationship where you feel unconditional love to the point where their joy is more important than your own. Now, of course, you are full of joy because you're able to give in this way and receive in this way. It's a perfect, um, a perfect, it's like in perfect harmony. Would you say that you've stepped into your place of empowerment? Obviously your spiritual study is given the backbone to, to your calling now, but would you say that the experiences of being a mother and being a wife have made you a better teacher, made you look at the world in a different way? Have they, has that been an important part of your self-discovery? I think that those experiences and being able to be in a, a healthy, supportive, unconditionally loving relationship, of course, has molded me um, 
in ways that I could have never become the person I am if I had not, and I'm not in the kind of relationship I'm in. Um, mm. The same can be said for parenting. But I, but I want to say with both things that you can be in a marriage for uh, 24 years, even a loving one. You can be a parent to many children or one child or whatever it is and not really be changed from it or certainly not changed for the better. I think it's how you approach it and it's how you look at it. I, I, I think far too often people see, you know, being a parent as I'm going to have a child because I, I want to have a child and, and, and we don't, you know, that relationship is forever evolving. When I look at my four children, they are all so completely different. Not one is the same. And, you know, we have this conversation a lot about nature versus nurture and, uh, you know, which one has priority because they, they come with their own set of characteristics and their own baggage from past lives and, and their own corrections of what they're meant to do in this lifetime. I understand my role as a mother is to be able to help them discover that voice within themselves, that desire, that passion, that intuition, where they can learn to navigate through life the way that I have. I, I don't see them as mine, and I certainly don't want to mold them into people that I think they should become. I want to look at them as uniquely individual people and, and help them make their lives make sense for them. So to do that, they are just as much my teachers as I am theirs. You know, I can go through each child and tell you what they've taught me about myself and how they've made me better, but I'm open to that, right? I'm never looking at like, I'm the parent and therefore you must listen to me or I know better than you or you should do this or you shouldn't have done that. I don't like anybody to talk to me like that, so I'm certainly not going to do that to them. And from that space, I'm constantly looking like, wow, Abigail did that. I wish I could be more like that. Or Miriam has this beautiful, mm. what you know, and so I, I think, it, again, it's it's how you are. And, and as a wife too, you know, if I were constantly looking at what I'm getting and what I should be getting or what he's giving to me or not giving enough or what who I want more of, uh, I, I'm going to be in a very limited relationship no matter who I'm married to. Instead, I look at it like we're partners in life and I'm curious about you know, his dreams and his aspirations. And I'm curious about how we can make ours grow together. And we're friends first and foremost, and we have fun together. I mean, all the things that were always important to me as a, a young, uh, as a young adult, right? We look for that in friendships, certainly. And some people lose that in relationships. So I, I think that, yes, we need a breadth of experiences. I think the more that you have, the more that you put yourself out there, the more you, the more opportunity you're going to have, but the opportunity will only be recognized if you approach life in that way. What shifted to actually make you put yourself out there? I mean, that these are two books that you've put out there. You're certainly taking on a more prominent role. You're being such a light and a guide to so many people. Was there a specific shift that happened where you felt compelled to rise to your potential? Um, I just couldn't do it any other way. Uh, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel fulfilled if I, I, I mean, it's just, it's what I feel I'm destined to do. The more that I'm able to share my story with people, the more I'm able to say, look, you know, I had this horrible day. I'm still learning, right? I'm here with you and hopefully inspiring people to be able to do the same, to look at their lives, their past experiences, both good and bad and say, you know, I, I love all of me. I think that uh, that's what feeds me. It's just not, it's like a, I'm compelled to do this work. I, I really, I couldn't live any other way. 
And I think you do such an incredible job of doing it. I'm just curious because my fear is that when people listen to this, you're going to sound way too relatable, way too much like you're living in the real world. And that doesn't work for spiritual gurus. Um, Obviously, I'm teasing you. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people think that when you have a spiritual practice, you somehow stop living in the world that we know it. And, you know, what I do love about the way that you break down this wisdom and these tools is you make it very digestible, very easy to understand, and you make them practical so that people can immediately take the information and they can start to applying it to their lives so that they they themselves can see the change that's brought about. I'm just curious, away from spiritual study and advocacy, what are some of the things that you do in your private life that you're passionate about that feeds your soul? Uh, Well, everything I do feeds my soul. I wouldn't do it. Um, I do want to, I'll I'll get back to this in a second, but I do want to say with with what you just said, you know, Tony Robbins came out with that documentary, I'm Not Your Guru. Um, I think that far too often people put others on a pedestal only to knock them down at some point because Mm. there's no such thing as perfection. Nobody's perfect. I think people who are trying to make the world um, better or the world more conscious or putting themselves out there in this kind of way, they they are more passionate about it. Maybe they put more time and effort into it. And the more time you put into anything, the better you're going to get at it, right? That just makes sense. I, I rather... First of all, I want to be relatable because, again, I'm uh, the world is my teacher. And, and as much as I'm here to teach people in different ways, I'm always going to be a student as well. I'd rather people re- discover me and discover me time and time again and even underestimate me to begin with and say, wow, wow, I didn't realize that, than to put me on a pedestal, which I never want to be on, just to knock me down. Because when you're knocked off a pedestal, people don't know where to put you anymore. So then you have no space in their life. And that, I think, is incredibly painful. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say that. Um, But in terms of how I spend my time, I think that I put consciousness and awareness in everything I do. I love to work out. I do that two hours a day. That really feeds my soul. And that may be looked at as a physical thing, but honestly, like that is meditation for me. The busier my body is, the more active it is, the stiller and quieter my mind is. And that's where a lot of messages come down for me. So I would say that um, I love learning. I love studying. I love reading. I'm very curious about life. So anything that kind of nourishes um, my my mind and my spirit as well. And uh, practicing appreciation and kindness and gratitude, that's a big part of my day too. Because you need, I don't think people actually set a time for that, but you need to set time aside for that. Because if not, it's so easy to take things for granted because that is human nature. So I make sure to take time to actually do that. Yeah, aside from the other stuff, writing, meeting with students and all of that. And spending time with my husband is big on the list too. As it should be. So what's what do we have on the horizon? Do we have more books in the pipeline? What, what are we going to be experiencing from you in the future? Yes. Well, um, my husband and I also have a, a podcast out now called Spiritually Hungry, which we love. It's doing very well, thank God. And um, my youngest and I wrote a children's book. It's a series of four. Um, so the first one's complete. We did that during covid so it's on kindness. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And um, I'm writing uh, another book called Change Junkie, and that is how to become addicted to change. So I'm halfway through that one. So, yeah. That's so exciting. And what's so interesting about you, because there's so many parallels between you and I that we've discovered over time. And I think in some ways in our lives, we've been hit with some of the same challenges or stresses. You've been very open about dealing with an eating disorder. I dealt with an eating disorder for a good 10 years. And what is so interesting and why I felt this was so important 
to not just talk to you, but because I think you're such a such a powerful advocate for change. You sort of take not to too too many puns, but you take the fear out of at least wanting to self-examine and wanting to self-explore. And I think that when people are armed with tools and a, and a higher understanding of how things work and actually looking at their self-destructive behavior as just um, a sort of reflection and a response to how they've navigated certain people or environments or experiences in the world, it really takes the, the destiny back in one's own hands and, and, and carries them through the challenges that life is still going to give. I mean, one of the, the fundamental things is the more you change, the more you grow. Oftentimes you have challenges and bigger situations that you explore, but you now have the tools to navigate so it doesn't do you in, so to speak. You know, I, exactly. I think that often people um, go through life just reacting to the next thing that comes at them. And again, if they don't think they're deserving, then they think that they this bad thing that happens because they're not good enough or, they, you know, it's a punishment of some sort. I think if we just pause, and again, this is going to take kindness to yourself first and foremost. It's, you know, you have to do that work of becoming your own friend. I mean, you can't it will be nearly impossible to achieve any of the things we've talked about without that. But if we look at life and the world around us, we have to realize we see it all through a filter that's built by every experience that we have each ever had, you know? And I don't think people Mm. give that enough credit. We see the flaws, choices that brought us to the present, hopes, fears, um, things that affected us and changed us, right? So the perception Mm. of ourselves continues to be influenced today by our families, our colleagues, um, the environment. So basically everything provides feedback, whether we're aware of it or not, but it's up to us to choose how we see things. We need to choose our perception, change our perception of things and choose our perspective. That's where that power comes in. That's where free will comes in. I think if people could navigate life in that way, they'd realize they are so powerful, right? They're powerful beyond belief, and therefore they can change anything that they want. I completely agree with you. And I think one of the things that I want the listeners to to, to really listen, and Monica, you're such a good advocate for being fearless and, and really doing the work. Uh, one of the things that sort of bothered me about the outside uneducated uh, belief systems or thoughts about the Kabbalah Center is so often people get their news from tabloid media, Right. So they think about this being a celebrity club associated with big names. And whilst obviously that's been beneficial in getting the the word out there so that people know about the center, those who are not linked to major cities especially, but also what I feel that it does is it distracts from how powerful and practical and effective these tools and wisdom can be. You know, personally going in my life right now, I'm going through cancer treatment. I've had cancer twice in the last year and a half. I absolutely know that the reason why I have this is a couple of reasons. First of all, it is a physical manifestation of the work that I hadn't been doing on myself. It's looking at the shame loop. It's looking at the inner child. It's looking at the shadow. It's looking at the programming. It's looking at the way that I navigate the world and what I let in and what I'm consumed by and where I'm fixated on. But it also is a major, major, major sign from the universe, from the light of the creator, from God, whatever you know we want to call it, to say to me, you've got to wake up. 
You've got to pay attention. You're on overdrive. You're being reactive and in suffrage and bondage to everything outside of yourself. And you have no relationship to what's going on inside. You don't actually know what you're doing or how you're doing it because you're an autopilot. And for me, Kabbalah has been incredibly powerful. And I want people to really listen to this. Really powerful at taking the trauma, the fear, the anxiety, the distrust away from my own personal health circumstance because I can understand it. And actually, I've come to the point where I feel incredibly grateful that I've gone through this journey because I'm closer to who I am, but I also know that I'm going to be able to show up for myself and for others, more compassionate, more connected, and more importantly, I'm going to be able to rise to my true potential. And I think that's a wonderful gift that the Kabbalah Center, that you, that your husband, and that the millions of students around the world are collectively trying to do to get that information out there. So anybody who doesn't understand Kabbalah, doesn't know what it's about, thinks it's a celebrity thing, get over it, go to the website, check it out. I'm going to link to all the information for you to find it. And I know that it will bring so much joy, growth, prosperity, and ultimate understanding to so many people's lives. Thank you. Yes, amazing. Thank you so much, Monica, for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. And I want to thank you so much for being, again, as I said, such a, a change junkie, somebody that really has made big, thought-provocative ideas about where we stand in the world and brought it down to a level, into a, to a way that we can all understand and that we can start to adopt so we can move forward in that, that place of growth and prosperity, as I said. So thank you again for your time. And I will link everybody to find you, to your website, to your books, and to your podcast. And more importantly, uh, it's just been such a joy and such a pleasure to get to know you. And I'm so grateful for the support that you've shown me during this time in my life. Thank you. I feel exactly the same and uh, no coincidences. I think it's perfect that now we have uh, discovered each other at this time. And we're having this conversation the week of Rosh Hashanah. So, I mean, it's, it's, yes. all, it's, all, it's all there. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to What Say You with me, Gavin McLeod Valentine. Don't forget to subscribe to the series on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at LordGMV. And please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and most importantly, share with anyone you think will be positively impacted by today's episode. See you next time.